Hey everyone, welcome to episode 15 of Conversations That Don't Suck. We have Adar Weinreb on the podcast today, and Adar was, um, I was connected to him through Zoe Flammenbaum, who was on the podcast um, in the early days, it's still the early days, we're 15 episodes deep, um, Zoe was, I think, maybe like the third episode I released. You can sort of scroll back um, to find my episode with her. But um, Adar is also based in Israel, also grew up in the United States, and is now an activist, social activist, um, bridging divides between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, um, and is a really has done some really amazing work, and we had a really, really great conversation. Um, a few things I'll say about this is... First of all, so at the beginning of the conversation, you'll hear us sort of make a few comments about coronavirus, like the state of things in Israel, the state of things here in San Francisco, where I'm based. And I say things like, oh, I just started social distancing, but this episode was recorded like the first or second week of March. So please ignore that. I've been social distancing for a long ass time now. So that's uh, just so you know, this is not, you know, was not recorded two days ago. It was recorded a little while ago. Um, So the state of things have changed. Um, and it was really special to have this conversation with Adar because being Israeli is such a huge part of my identity and being, being Jewish is such a huge part of my identity. And there's so much conflict in that side of my identity and that, yeah, Israel is such a contested place. And I think it's very sexy to hate Israel right now, um, which is really upsetting to me. Um, and I think it's such a, a hugely misunderstood place and the conflict that's happening there is so deeply misunderstood and it's so easy to paint a picture of one side is right and one side is wrong. Um, and there's just extraordinary challenge happening on both sides and extraordinary disconnection happening on both sides. And one thing that Adar really does a good job of portraying is that most Israelis will never become friends with a Palestinian person because they don't live in the same worlds there and vice versa. Um, and that makes it very easy to create fear and very easy to create hate through that fear. And so I really appreciate his perspective here, and he gives a really good nuanced take on that. Um, and some of this actually reminded me of a podcast episode that I listened to just a couple of days ago on Brene Brown's new podcast called Unlocking Us. And she spoke with Dr. Vivek Murthy, who um, is the former U.S. Surgeon General. And he recently he just came out with a book called Together. And it's about how love and connection is the most vital thing that we can do for our physical health. And I actually saw Dr. Murthy speak at a huge conference here in San Francisco called Wisdom 2.0 a couple months ago. And he's just absolutely fantastic. And Dr. Murthy has been on a ton of podcasts recently. He was just on the Tim Ferriss show. I think he was on the Ezra Klein show. He's he was just on. NPR's show, uh, I'm forgetting which one, Hidden Brain, is that what it's called? Anyways, he's like all over because his whole topic is loneliness, which is of course quite relevant right now. Um, And so I highly recommend listening to him speak. He's a fabulous speaker and he has just such a beautiful grounded presence and such an eloquent way of describing how loneliness manifests in our lives and why it's so important that it gets addressed in certain, in specific ways and how it's often ways that we're not used to addressing loneliness through. So, um, but anyways, one thing they were talking about, Brene Brown and Dr. Murthy, one thing they were saying um, was this thing called motive attribution asymmetry. And it's a thing that gets talked about in conflicts a lot in that it's uh, a type of, it's a term that describes how when two sides are fighting about something, we tend to assume that me, my side, the side I agree with is motivated by love and the other side is motivated by hate. 
or by fear. And this is, and both sides are thinking this way. My side is motivated by love, by peace, by moral rectitude and uprightness, whatever it is. Um, and the other side is motivated by something completely different. It's asymmetrical. And so it's it's interesting that I had just learned about this term motive attribution and uh, and how Adar actually speaks a lot about this without using that exact term, but of how we just assume that the other side is motivated by something completely different than what we're motivated by and how easy it is to fall into those modes of thinking when we have absolutely no forms of connection with the other side and all we have are stories and fears and things that we have learned to believe about the people with whom we never ever have dialogue. So those are just a few musings from me um, as I was going back and editing this episode. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Adar, for being willing to chat with me. And I hope y'all love this episode with Adar. We live in a world that is starved for more authentic connection. Better conversations are our first step in getting there. Welcome to Conversations That Don't Suck. I'm your host, Kyla Sokol Ward, and I'm here to engage you in truth-telling discussions about the super deep, always beautiful, sometimes ugly, and wholly honest parts of being a human. Real connection and empathic communication can feel easy and should be a part of our everyday lives. Most of our conversations suck. These ones don't. Hi, Adag. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Kyla. It's uh, great being here. Yeah, thanks for joining me all the way across the earth, all the way in Israel. How are things in Israel today? Are y'all on like more of a more of a lockdown than the United States is these days? Yeah, I'd say uh, Israel took slightly uh, stricter measures to combat uh, the spread of Corona. Uh, I personally just just now finished a two week quarantine because I was in Egypt, um, oh. but. Israel being a smaller nation with a stronger central government, and what I mean by stronger meaning that once there's a law put out or a new policy in place by the government that is relevant for all Israelis, America's a little bit more challenging because of the 50 states. The states do have some power. And I said America. I know people from South America and Canada don't like referring to the United States as America. <laughs> yeah. So I apologize. I'm in the United States. Um, but yeah, so we've had very strict measures. They just banned any gathering of over 10 people. Schools are shut down. Malls are closed. Restaurants are closed. They, they shut down the entire country. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting time. How does it feel for you? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm in San Francisco and I think, um, uh, I think the panic has like really started to settle in just in the last like week or so. Um, and yeah, you know, I think my, I, I feel okay. Um, I'm like a little restless. I sort of just started the self quarantine thing. Um, like yesterday, really, I didn't leave the house at all. And I think my, my fear is mostly around just like the restlessness of being here for two weeks and also of like feeling purposeless that's like a really big fear for me. I don't know. I'm, I could, I could probably draw a few conclusions about where that comes from, but like, yeah, I think it's, it's hard for me to feel like I'm like really doing something in the world. And that just might be like some capitalist bullshit of wanting to feel productive. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a little like anticipatory fear of like, Oh, what if I'm like not doing enough while I'm stuck at home for two weeks? Right. Right. And I guess that feeling would be amplified now because 
there's a lot of pain and a lot of fear and it feels like now's the time more than ever where we would want to do something and it's sometimes not clear what we can do yeah yeah totally mm, well there's lots we could get into there but that's that's sort of the discussion of the world these days um i would love for you to tell everyone listening who you are and what you're about and we can uh we can flow from there sure so my name's adar weinreb um I have lived in Israel now for the past close to 12 years, but as you can hear, my English is pretty good. Um, I grew up in America, New Jersey to be exact. Um, I moved to Israel when I was 18 to join the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. I did this for, I guess, two main reasons. One, I was raised with very deep Zionist teachings. Uh, my dad is ninth generation Israeli. Uh, his family moved here in 1812. So wow. 130, years, 130 years before the creation of the state of Israel. Uh, and I always had it in my head that maybe one day I'll move to Israel and join the army like my father and grandfather and uncles. Um, and then in high school, I was a pretty big troublemaker. I was uh, constantly getting suspended. I was a drug user. I realized that going to college in the state I was in probably wouldn't be the best for me. So the army seemed like an escape, uh, a way to straighten me up. So I packed up my bags at age 18 and moved to Israel. That was 12 years ago. I have no regrets. It's been a, a phenomenal 12 years uh, with all the ups and the downs. I got into activism, social activism around five years ago. I, uh, Again, I was raised with certain teachings. I was not taught to hate Palestinians in any way, shape, or form. I was just taught that we need to fear them and we need to defend ourselves against them. Mm. Um, in the army, in the army, I had a realization uh, by looking at a picture of a Hamas member crawling through sand. And I crawled through sand that same day, and I looked at the Hamas soldier. That's my my sworn enemy, and I saw myself in him, and I started asking myself, if this was, if I was born in Gaza, could be, this be me? Could this be my loved one? Does his family view him as a hero and me as a terrorist? Can that be? Now, these, um, these questions I asked myself didn't change my ideology overnight. Uh, Deep-rooted, fear-based teachings can sometimes take a lifetime to change, but that moment certainly planted a seed and with time grew into a garden. And that garden is one of understanding the need to get to know the other side, understanding that we are all products of our environment and upbringing. And if I were to, mm. to be born there, I would be them. And then the path forward is through dialogue and communication and getting to know the other side. So around five years, four or five years after getting out of the army, I moved into activism, primarily building bridges between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, I still do that today, but I, uh, also do more general activism. I recently launched a podcast called Standing Up, where I speak to activists from all over the world. And yeah, I'd say that's a two-minute pitch. Amazing. Wow, 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 wow. I'm, one of the things that caught my attention with what you said was that you weren't taught to hate Palestinians, but there was like fear instilled in you. And it's I've I've never heard, I've heard anyone um really phrase it that way, but I would say like with my experiences of having lived in Israel and being really connected to Israel and Israelis, I would say that's probably a pretty accurate view um 
or like maybe a story that I would put to a lot of their experiences. Can you say more about that, like the difference between hate and fear in your mind? Yeah, I'd say they're in many ways they're similar because I think um, fear is a precursor to hate. You normally fear something and through that fear you begin to hate it. But I think, I think there is, you know, there is a difference. So if you ask the average Israeli if they hate Palestinians, they'd say no. They'd say they hate the ones who try to kill them and they need to be cautious of all of them. Again, um, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I think it's fair to say the majority believe that way. Mm. Now, it's true that having a lifetime of this fear-based teaching sometimes does eventually become hate. And we do see that. We see that there are all too many abuses of Palestinians by Israeli soldiers. This is even with the strict protocol against treating Palestinians harshly. So this is something that the world, who people in the world who are have an interest in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, they they think that the army is inherently malicious towards Palestinian Palestinians, but the protocols we're taught are actually um, to minimize harm against them. Yeah. Now that doesn't always translate into reality, and the the, the reason that doesn't always translate into reality, and there are abuses of Palestinians by Israeli soldiers, is because they've had a lifetime of fear that has in time turned into hate. It's sometimes hard to draw a distinction because they're so intertwined. What are, what are your thoughts? Ooh. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, well, the reason I asked was because I, I wasn't sure there was really a difference. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you like speaking to that a bit. Um, you know, I think the only, I'm trying to think of like a specific example. When I lived in Israel, I lived in Haifa and Haifa, for those who don't know, is a very like mixed city, as they say, that there are a lot of both Jews and um, Arab Israelis there. This was, oh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, this was like right after the winter of like 2015, 2016, where there were a lot of stabbings happening um, in Israel. And I don't know if you remember that time, Adag, but um, yeah. I, I remember just feeling a lot of fear walking around Israel and I, I never feel scared when I'm in Israel. I feel much safer there than I do in the United States. And that like in the U S when I walk outside, like I get sexually harassed literally every time I go outside, um, people have guns, people like, you know, there's stories of mass shootings every single day in the United States. Like none of that happens in Israel. Um, and right. so when I heard about, you know, when all of these stabbings were happening all over Israel, granted, really in not that high of numbers compared to what goes on in the United States. Obviously, the U.S. is a much bigger country, but even still, um, I remember like really feeling myself othering people very strongly and sort of looking at people and thinking like, oh, is this person dangerous? Do I need to cross, you know, do I need to walk on the other side of the street? Um, should I not get on this bus? These types of things. And it was this really... Um, First of all, again, a really foreign feeling and that I don't normally feel that way in Israel. And also, like, I felt really disgusted with myself of the way that I was profiling people. And it's a really, like, yeah, I feel a lot of shame saying that. Um, yeah, and the way that, like, fear was definitely instilled in me and thinking, like, is right. this person dangerous or not? Um, 
it's a defense mechanism, but it's, of course, it separates us from one another. It's really, it's, it's, yeah, ugh, yeah it's really pernicious. It's, uh, it's entire, entirely natural to feel that fear. And I think that puts you in a unique position to be able to, A, understand that fear and hate aren't always synonymous in this instance, but also it's easy to see how fear could translate into hate over time. Yeah. Yeah. Really easy. And so, yeah. Can you say more about your work and like what, what you do to, to bridge some of those divides? So yeah, a lot of it comes down to the human humanization of the other. I, I truly believe that the path to peace is paved through the humanization of the other. And most Israelis have never met a Palestinian. Most Palestinians right. not met any Israelis aside from soldiers and settlers neither of whom treat them with much respect or dignity. So our teachings come only from our media and from our school systems. Our media is inherently sensationalist. They sell fear. All medias do this. All, all mainstream media, as you say, I, we can say do this. So Israelis have a certain notion of Palestinians and they, they'll never meet a, a nice Palestinian. Sure, they meet Israeli Arabs who they coexist with, but Palestinians they don't meet. They they hear about them, and then they hear about terror attacks that kill their friends and family. Um, so that just reinforces the teachings they have. Palestinians as well, they are taught not so great things about Israelis in their school systems and and on TV, and then that is reinforced by meeting soldiers and meeting settlers who don't treat them with dignity and respect. So the solution to this is to really tear down the wall, metaphorically, you know, the wall of communication that doesn't allow for us to speak to one another. So the things I'm primarily engaged with is really any activity which will support and promote dialogue between both sides. A lot of this is done on social media. I often introduce friends to Palestinians. I have Palestinians who uh, also have a lot of friends that want to meet Israelis. I have a lot of friends that want to meet Palestinians. And then we create this like pen pal system between them. So it's like a modern day pen pal system between Israelis and Palestinians. And that's also a, a completely safe way to communicate because you're doing it on social media. Um, I'm also involved with a brilliant organization called Minds of Peace. They host public negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. The whole idea is to bring Israelis and Palestinians together to find solutions to, to the conflict from the bottom up, have the everyday people find the solutions. And what we've noticed is that actually the, the everyday citizens are able to resolve the conflict when they sit and talk. It's our politicians who struggle with it. Um, and even when certain dialogues don't reach a conclusion, it still does something extremely important for the educational process because again that's the first time many of these israelis and palestinians are being introduced from somebody on the other side um so these are really the types of work i focus on and um what what we're discussing now is really not exclusive to the israeli-palestinian conflict whenever there's a group of people that you deem as the enemy or the oppressor uh, and again even if a minority of this group is treating you a certain way you begin to blame the entire group. It's something, 
you know, we're wired this way. So it's a tribal tendency to, to, you know, mm -hmm. find, find an enemy in a, in a simplistic way. So you could be victimized by five people of a certain group that says nothing about the millions of others from that group. But then you start to be suspicious of that group, like you described happening to you. It's a very natural reaction, but we could look at, um, let's, let's talk about the relationship between women and men. Uh, there's a lot of anger towards men today. Um, and if you hear stories about what women have, have experienced, it's easy to understand where this anger comes from. Now it's not, for me to say who should or shouldn't be angry. But I think that one of the reasons why it's hard to find a male feminist is because they think that the feminist movement is about, is, is an anti-male movement instead of a pro-equality movement, which mm -hmm. you and I know very well that it's about equality, not being anti-male. But I think the, the anger many women feel um, gives men, and, and again, rightfully so, but that gives men the impression that there's, um, you know, that it's a battle against them and it gets them defensive. And, and so, so I think this, this notion of um, categorizing people in groups and seeing, you know, the entire group as the enemy because of the actions of a few, I think it's something that is relevant to all conflicts uh, in Israel and Palestine and in the United States as well and all over the world. Ooh, yeah. One thing that reminds me of is like, um, I mean, I hear a lot of my male friends say that like, Yes, they have these like hesitations around the feminist movement as it stands now. Of course, like that movement has evolved over the years. But um, one thing that I hear overwhelmingly from my male friends is like, I want to have a conversation about this. I want to have many conversations about this with my female friends, but I don't know how. And I am afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I am afraid of, um, yeah, of like saying something ignorant or of not knowing something. And it's really heartbreaking to me because there is so much opportunity for dialogue. As you're saying, like Israelis want to meet Palestinians and vice versa, and they want to be able to see them as human and they want to understand one another, but there's not an opportunity for it, it at least in a way that feels safe, both, you know, with the Israeli Palestinian conflict and also with the feminist movement with men and women and uh, other identifying folks, how, whatever it is, there's not always like the safe space created of like, we don't always know what's happening with one another. Like right, right now, as it stands, we don't understand one another, but, and it's going to take some real work to understand each other. Um, but yeah, we have to like create the space for us to be able to open it up and mess things up and say things that are wrong. And for that to be okay, in order for us to have the dialogue. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, like, yeah. what are some of the main reactions or like initial dialogues that happen when Israelis and Palestinians start communicating with each other in your experiences? Yeah, sure. I, I just want to say something real quick about yeah. what you just said, because you, you made a great point. And I think really what it comes down to is being compassionate towards the other side and understanding that, you know, even if they, they should feel safe to speak what they feel and the second you make them feel unsafe, then we, we're, we're essentially killing dialogue. Mm -hmm. So you use the term safe space, and you use safe space the way I think it should be used, not how it currently is used. So currently a safe space is, you know, it's, it's a space primarily on college campuses where people are safe from being offended. But again, you know, being offended is really something subjective. You could be offended by somebody wearing a green shirt. So it's an interesting 
you know, and, and obviously I'm taking it to an extreme, right? You know, racism is offensive, sexism mm-hmm. is offensive, but I, I, I think what a safe space should be is a place where you can share any idea you want and feel safe to share that idea. And if it's a bad idea, then the other people will explain why it's a bad idea. So I, I like your use of safe, safe space. I think that's how we need to be using that term. And I think that will really do a lot to promote dialogue if we could allow people to feel safe speaking, um, speaking their minds. Uh, when, it com- when it comes down to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so Palestinians actually often don't feel safe because there's a very strong anti-normalization movement amongst Palestinians. And essentially what that means is you do not normalize with the enemy. You don't normalize mm-hmm. ties with them. You don't work for them. You don't work with them. You don't have become friends with them. Now, this is problematic because this is not, you know, people like to paint this as just the classic conflict between oppressor and oppressed, a colonizer against, you know, the indigenous people. And that's often how it's depicted. But if, if you really look at it, it, it's a conflict between two populations that have so much fear and distrust of one another that they just, there's there's not even a starting point from which peace can be built. So while I could see anti-normalization working in certain instances when it's a group against a system, for example, I could see why in apartheid South Africa, it would be more effective. I, I could see why not normalizing with a system or certain people inside a system could be effective. But here, essentially, the movement amongst Palestinians is saying, you do not speak to any Israelis. But if our goal is to build trust between one another, and that is what our goal should be, then we need to communicate. We need to have dialogue. So Palestinians, it's very hard to find Palestinians to come and speak, especially in public settings. What we noticed at the beginning of Minds of Peace uh, was that it was very hard to bring even a dozen Palestinians to negotiation. Mm -hmm. What we realized was once we grow these negotiations, we were able to bring hundreds. It's easier to bring a hundred than it is to bring 10. And that's because they have um, security in numbers. It's it's harder to single out a a very big group. But what these Palestinians do face going home after meeting with the Israelis is um, negative backlash from their neighbors. And some of them very sadly are also interrogated, arrested and interrogated by the Palestinian Authority, which is often depicted as the good guy out of the, you know, between them and Hamas, they say the PA, they're the good ones. Well, it's hard for me to say that when they're interrogating and disincentivizing activists and regular individuals from speaking to Israelis. Mm, yeah. have I'm curious, have you received pushback from this from like Jewish Israeli friends? Because my sense is that I don't know. I think a lot of my friend group in Israel are people who are, I wouldn't say they're super right wing there. I wouldn't say they're super conservative, but um, I don't know. I have a feeling they might look at what you're doing and be like, yeah, this is kind of bullshit. Do you get that? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a fair um, assessment. We Israeli activists, anybody who's trying to build ties with the Palestinians get pushed back in the form of ridicule. Um, not, uh, again, we have much less to fear and lose than the Palestinians do when it comes mm-hmm. to the dialogue, but there still is some level of ridicule and pushback we do get from Israelis. And 
and you know, like you said, it's not like they're super right wing, but they still aren't believers in peace. And what that means to not be believers in peace is not that they don't want peace. It's that they do not have faith that there will ever be peace. We're all, both populations are super demoralized. Last, last polling I saw showed that 75 or something percent of Israelis don't think we'll ever have mm -hmm. peace. And 92% of Palestinians don't think we'll ever have peace. So when you have two populations that are so demoralized that think that peace is, is not attainable, well, then you don't have a population that is motivated and inspired to make an effort. Why waste time, time on something that is out of our control? And, and I think that's true for many forms of activism. Uh, why are most people not activists? It's not that they don't want to see the world become a better place. It's that they don't think the effort they need to invest is, is worth the time. So our, our time and resources limited. How much time and resources are we going to invest in a change we may never see? Mm, yeah, well, I, that, this is a great question. How do you keep doing your work if, you, if you're being surrounded by so much of that negativity and demoralization? Well, I have a very... Um, agnostic worldview in the sense that I don't actively believe in in any of any of the things that are not proven or don't have sufficient evidence for it, it seems like I'm getting off topic but I'll get back to what we're talking about so I don't I don't actively believe in God or the afterlife or karma and again being agnostic I'm not saying these things don't exist I'm saying I, I simply don't know um, and this unknown many people are not comfortable living with that's why we often fill the gaps of unknown with belief. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. If, if believing things empower you, then I, will, then I will support you believing that. I'll never tell you that it's a phony belief. I'd never tell you that it's unwarranted. At the end of the day, we all need to find meaning in this life. And I think that's where my activism comes from. I, I recognize that the meaning of life is to give life meaning. I don't know who, who, whose quote that is, but it's a quote I love. So you can find meaning through religion or through other forms of spirituality, but you can also understand that you are free to choose your meaning uh, in life. And being, being given that choice, I'm like, okay, I'm fucking free. I can mm. do whatever I want. But whatever I want is I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. I want to align my deathbed and know that I... Uh, I, I had an all around good life that I inspired people, that I was inspired by people, that I improved as a person. Perhaps I helped get at least one win for humanity. So for me, it's not really about seeing the change. Of course, I'd love to see my actions result in change. But if I live and die without that happening, I'd be perfectly fine. I just am here trying to live a meaningful life. And I think that there's no better meaning we can have than trying to make the world a better place. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, I just read um, last year, I just read um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And um, it was actually, have you read this book, Adar? No, I haven't. Now, are you familiar with Viktor Frankl and like his worldview? I'm not actually. Sounds interesting. Yeah. So he, he's a Holocaust survivor and he's, I mean, he's been dead for a long time, I think. Oh my God, I think. I'm not totally sure, but I would assume he it, is. It's a, safe, um, it's a safe guess. Yeah, safe bet. Um, he, um, but his whole thing, he's also a, um, 
a psychotherapist, I believe, and or was a psychotherapist. And his whole worldview is like pretty existential in that like life's a bitch and then you die. So in the meantime, while we're alive, we might as well make meaning out of it. And him having sat in concentration camps for years and saying like, yeah, like life is suffering and like we're all going to suffer. It's inevitable. That's sort of like his main thing is that suffering is inevitable. And so with that knowledge, can we set ourselves free to make meaning out of that instead of like being, um, instead of like suffering about the fact that we're suffering? And um, yeah, it, I think when I first like heard about this idea, I remember like learning about existentialism like in high school when we were reading some, I don't even know what. Um, and I was like, oh, this is awful. It's like so sad. And it's so, um, you know, that's not true that like life's a bitch and then you die. But I hate that. Um, right. But it, it really like is so freeing of like, we're all going to suffer. It's going to happen. Great. Can we be with that? Can we be okay with that? Can we find peace with that? Can we think of something interesting to do between birth and death? Cool. And like, I, I love that you're saying that you're not necessarily measuring happiness based on outcome, but it sounds like you're measuring happiness based on effort and like, cool, hopefully I'll like, I'm going to do a few things. Hopefully it makes some kind of positive change. Um, but I'm going to like do what I'm going to do. And, um, whether or not that like changes the entire world is not the point, right? but just to feel at peace with what you're able to do. It's beautiful. Yeah. That, that, um, brings me to another quote, uh, I'm sure you've heard this one. Life is about the journey, not the destination. I think it's something along those mm -hmm. lines. It's, it's just about the process of getting places, not, not where you go. Um, and so this guy, Victor Frankl, you said his name was? Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. a bell. So it seems like, you know, his, his philosophy is not, not so different from, from mine, but you could tell that because he had such a difficult past, where he was, where he's a Holocaust survivor. Um, he's experienced horrific things that I could never even imagine. So it's, it's easy to understand why that would affect his worldview to see it in through the lens of suffering. You suffer, but you might as well find meaning. If he, if he were to live a life that had, with a fair amount more privilege, like we do living in the 21st century in a first world country, I mean, there's very few things that give an individual more privilege than that that his philosophy would probably be more similar, would be similar in the sense that we need to find meaning in this world, but it wouldn't be through the lens of suffering. He would say, life on some days is good, on others, I, I know I'm speaking for him, but I guess this is how I see it. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, life is good. Sometimes it's hard. Other times the suffering is inevitable. We just need to deal with it gracefully. I guess that's how I like mm. to look at it. I don't see suffering as like a main focal point of my worldview. It's something that I just recognize that has existed in my past, will exist in my future. And I used to think that the more I evolve, the less I will suffer. But I've come to realize the past few years that I'm not sure that's true. I think that it's just the more I evolve, the more graceful I'll be through my suffering, the more I'll be able to accept that this is just part of life and that brighter days will come. That's how I try to look at it. Mm, yeah, I love that. I'm speaking of, of privilege in these things with the people that you're working with. Is it, um, I'm curious, like what it's brought up for you as an individual in terms of your own privilege as, as a Jewish Israeli. Um, and actually I think I'm kind of more curious about like things that's brought up in terms of like 
biases and kind of like maybe uglier shadowy sides of yourself that it's brought up if anything if you'd be willing to speak to that I'm always really curious about how this type of work can bring that out of us you're saying certain darkness that's come through my my level of privilege um yeah and like specifically as it relates to you working with Palestinians who have far less privilege than you do so I would say and I don't know if this is true for me today, but it certainly was in the past, and it certainly is for many Israelis, that we like to think that there is inequality between us. And when I say equality, I don't mean our intrinsic value as humans, but that we are both capable of the same outcome in life. So we'll constantly hear saying, well, the Palestinians you know, aren't educating themselves enough. They're not getting good jobs. They're not, start, why don't they have a high-tech sector in Ramallah? Which by the way, they do, but you know, you hear Israelis saying this, that they are, you know, they control their destiny and the fact that they are not in a good position is their fault. Look what we Jews did when given this land. Look what they've done. So I would say that's a darkness that comes out of privilege because so much of who we are and so much of what we've accomplished and so much of what we know is just a result of where we were born, what school we went to, how much money we had. So to expect the same results out of the Palestinians, um, to, to expect the same ideology out of the Palestinians, and even the same morality, it's just not, not really understanding that we are products of our environment. Um, and even a terrorist, you know, a terrorist that that murders Israeli children, let's take the most extreme case, that terrorist was born an innocent child. It is their environment and their upbringing and perhaps something on a biological level which led them to be a terrorist, uh, a horrible human being. Had that same human being been born in Israel or in America, they would not be a terrorist. So I, I think that's really what, what understanding your privilege is. It's about being more understanding to people who achieve different results and different understandings in life. If you were in their shoes, you would achieve those same understandings and results. If they were in your shoes, they would see what you see. We need to be more empathetic and more understanding towards people who, uh, who see the world differently and, and understanding that our, as we, we like to think of it, our superior worldview. And, and again, I'm not, you know, if somebody, I, th I think morality is subjective, but I think that, you know, we're allowed to have a, a vibrant discussion on what, whose version of morality is, is preferred. But so uh, again, I, the case could be made that it's okay to consider your worldview superior, but that being said, we need to be understanding as to what gives somebody a uh, quote unquote inferior worldview. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, I'm curious though, like, <clears throat> okay, especially if we're talking about the way you maybe view these situations versus the majority of Jewish Israelis, which is that I, I think, mo as we said, most Jewish Israelis are like pretty cynical or disheartened, demoralized about this whole situation. And I think that for most activists, for them to not get bogged down in that, they have to face, my assumption is that you have to face a certain amount of yourself. Like you have to sort of like face some uglier sides of yourself in order to be able to do the work that you're doing and to feel, um, oh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? In order to feel like you can really engage with the darkness that is 
in order to be able to engage with the demoralization and to be able to like overcome that in your role. And this was a really wandering thought. So I'm hoping this makes sense to you, but I'm curious about like, what is that stuff inside yourself you've had to face in order to continue doing the work that you're doing? Does that make sense? I can yeah, try and like yeah. make that more succinct. No, it, it does. It does. But I think it just comes back to my worldview that it's just about the journey. It's about, oh no, I'm demoralized, whatever. Wake up and, you know, keep trying, keep working on something. And you know, the, I, I do have, and so, so it, it, you know, someone can make the case that I'm not a great activist because I'm not, I would say somebody who is truly thinks that they're going to view results in their lifetime and, and, you know, they'll fight and die to see those results. They may be more motivated than me and more dedicated and, and invest more hours. So I'd say my agnostic worldview and the fact that I'm doing it just to give me meaning, sometimes I do have months at a time where I'm less motivated, less interested. And then, you know, I'm, I, I come back to it. So I'm not, I'm by no means a perfect activist. I just, I do what I can when I can. When I'm not feeling up for it, then I don't, I, I really don't feel like I need to be a certain way for anybody. You know, I'm obviously I have commitment to my my loved ones and to my fellow human beings, you know, basic levels of respect. Um, but I, I don't feel like I need to be an activist. And if not, that I'm somehow not fulfilling some moral, moral obligation. I, I don't feel like that way. I don't, I don't view activism as a moral obligation as much as a moral virtue. I think if you ever want to take a step, take a step in the right direction and do something virtuous, well then, you know, let's let's speak up against injustice. Let's try to make peace between um, fighting populations. And again, there's you know there's near infinite forms of activism, so it doesn't need to be like that. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it sounds like a lot of what you're speaking to is like. Um, I mean, one thing I wonder a lot about when it comes to activism, or even with like something like spirituality, which can often be far less active than activism, um, is just like, what is altruism? Like, what is actual altruism? And I hear a lot of people who work in activist spaces saying that they can sometimes, they're not always sure if their actions are totally altruistic, or if they're just doing this to feel good about themselves. And I think that's okay. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't judge that. So, so, so that's, that's actually a very interesting philosophical discussion. You know, is there any is there such a thing as a selfless act? And it's, it seems like there isn't, but I think we just need to have better definitions. So doing something because it makes you feel good is not selfish unless you do that thing at the expense of the well-being of others. So for example, mm. if, if I help people because it makes me feel good, sure, you could try to say that that's selfish, but let's reserve the term selfish for an action that is doing something for yourself at the expense of others, because, you know, our language matters or def definitions mattered matters. And if we're going to call activists selfish, well, then we disincentivize activists from being who they are and we don't want to do that. So it's okay right. to be selfish if you're helping people, but if your selfishness is not helping people, well, then that can be condemned. And that's how I like to look at it. So, yeah, I think, I think most activists, most altruists do it because they feel good about it and that's fine. They're still helping people. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is, a, it is a big philosophical question that could go on for a while. It's something I've definitely thought about a lot, even in my own work of just like, oh, am I just doing this to feel important? Which partly, yeah, totally. I am just doing, I do want to feel important. And I think it's okay to want to feel important, but it's, it, I do wrestle with that a lot of like, how okay is it? And uh, yeah, yeah, something we're all sitting with. I, I, I feel you, sister. I feel you. <laughs> you know, I, I'd say as long as what you're doing is helping other people, don't even worry about it. Because at the end of the day, that's what we need more of. We need more people helping others. If, if, some, if some super rich person donates a million dollars to, to help poor people. I, I don't give a shit if he's doing it to help his name. You know, let him do whatever he wants. He's helping people. Let's praise that type of behavior. Why? Because if, if, if billionaires see that when they donate money, they're praised, that will incentivize more billionaires to donate. If they see that they're just being called out for being selfish and doing it for their own image, well, then that will disincentivize them to doing it. So, so in order to really incentivize good behavior and incentivize people to, you know, to being active in making the world a better place, you know, let's, let's really praise good behavior when we see it and let's really stop questioning people's motives unless, unless their motives truly are horrible. If it's just to make them feel better, then cool. You know, we all need to feel good in this world. Mm, yeah yeah I also think it's like it is so much more nuanced and just like oh this is good or this is bad and I think that's where it's so easy to get stuck is like yeah if we condemn people for their actions right off the bat without being curious and exploring more and attempting to understand which is like yeah again it's so much of the work that you're doing if we don't do that then yeah we're gonna disincentivize everyone from taking that same action right, exactly. even if it could be super beneficial yeah exactly, yeah mm. um well I want to be mindful of our time but I would love one thing first is that I would love for you to tell the people where we can find out more about you and the work that you're doing and about your podcast. And then I want to ask you a series of some lightning round questions that I'm asking all my guests. Awesome. So yeah, if you would tell us where we can learn more about you. Sure. So um, I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My podcast is on Apple, Spotify, all the big ones. And my tag for all of them is the same, um, at Adar Weinreb, that's A-D-A-R-W-E-I-N-R-E-B. Um, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to engage in dialogue. Um, I'm always happy to learn from people. So if I said something on this episode that bothered you, call me out on it. It's always an opportunity for me to learn. If you liked something I said, feel free to to tell me that as well. Um, I'm always happy to hear from people. And yeah, let's let's do this lightning round. Oh, hell yeah. I love that invitation for, uh, for, for discussion. That's beautiful. Um, great. Okay. First one, what is something that most people assume about you? That I like to speak. It's, it's a correct assumption as well. <laughs> what, that you like to speak just in general? Yeah, I like I like to talk to people about different things. You know, I'm just I, I, I like the concept of dialogue. I like learning new things. I like sharing ideas. Um, yeah. Hell yeah. Awesome. Um, what is something that you would like to be acknowledged more for in your life? Being someone who has connected millions of people and put forth 
um, ideas for how to have better conversations. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm going to give you a lot of acknowledgement for that because I'm, I'm in that same party and I feel you. Amen. Um, awesome. <laughs> what do you think? What is one thing that you think most people learn from you? Um, maybe a different way to approach um, conversation. How to not debate over things, how to speak to somebody with a different perspective and not have it turn into a debate, rather a, a robust dialogue of sorts. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, so needed. And lastly, well, I'm very curious to hear your answer on this. What is one of your favorite questions to ask other people to help you to get to know them? Uh, I think that one thing that I often ask guests on my podcast is what what drives them to be an activist, where their passion comes from. And I think you could learn a lot about somebody from that question. As you asked, you know, you asked me that and got, you, you learned a little bit about my worldview. So it seems to be uh, effective. Mm, beautiful. Awesome. Well, Adar, thank you so, so much for, for taking some time out of your day across the world to speak with me. And uh, I'm really happy that Zoe connected us. Um, and it was so beautiful to hear more about your work and what you're doing in Israel um, and for people all around the world. And yeah, it was really great getting to know you. Thank you. Carla. It was uh, it was a true pleasure and I'd be happy to be back on any time. And, uh, you know, let's let's continue chatting. Uh, I consider you a friend now. Hell yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. There you have it. That is the episode with Adar. Definitely check out his social media if you want to be more connected with him. I definitely recommend taking him up on that offer for continued dialogue. Um, if that is something that feels alive for you. Thanks so much for listening. I love y'all so much and I'll see you next week with the next episode.